All right, all you geeks out there, you're going to be listening to, you know, the geek master, Traction Sci-Fi. Here he is, my geeky husband. Go get a life. Hello, everyone. It's Sunday, March the 26th, 2006, and this is show number 37 for Traction Sci-Fi. This is going to be uh, a little different this week. Uh, it's going to be primarily a collectible show. I hope uh, everyone enjoys that. Stay tuned. Uh, here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Treks in Sci-Fi podcast. Scotty, beat me up. Fascinating. Stand by to receive our transmission. Again, welcome to the program. This is Trex in Sci-Fi. This is your host, Rico. And it's uh, a nice Sunday morning here in uh, beautiful Michigan where I live. I hope everyone's uh, had a good week. Uh, I put out a little mini-show midweek about the, uh, the kind of adventures of the Starship Aurora crew. So I wonder what uh, folks have thought about that uh, if you liked it, if you didn't, uh, like I said on that show, it was uh, done a long, long time ago. So it was a, it was a little bit of a kind of an experiment or a shot in the dark to to record it and put it on the podcast. But give me some feedback. Let me know what you thought about that. TrekSF at gmail dot com. I wanted to give a little bit more uh, background on doing that uh, Aurora episode. Like I said uh, on the midweek podcast. The, that episode was was done a long, long time ago with cassette recorders uh, and very little uh, in terms of uh, equipment, audio equipment. Nothing like uh, people have these days easily with computers and nice microphones and mixers and things. So keep in mind uh, that when you listen to it. I'm probably going to put a few more of those up uh, periodically. The... Uh, the audio effects, the the sound effects, the music, things like that during the show, basically what I had done was I recorded Star Trek episodes right off of the uh, TV at the time with just an old, old condenser-type microphone plugged into uh, my cassette recorder, kind of held up to the uh, very uh, inadequate uh, TV speaker and recorded on cassette tapes uh, the Star Trek episodes. And, you know, now, of course, you can walk into... Uh, any store, buy the DVD sets, you can buy CDs. Uh, I have a CD with uh, filled with Star Trek sound effects that are done in real high CD quality, uh, And but none of that was available th- at that time. So what I had to do was find different audio effects like a, you know, a phaser fire or a door opening or different music from different Star Trek episodes and just include those during our, uh, our show. The uh, So that's the way that was done. And what I did was we recorded our scripts, our lines, uh, pretty much straight out. And I'm trying to even recall right now, I think I edited edited the effects in. I had like another tape recorder d- dubbed in. And what I did was had those effects ready to go as we were recording it. Um, and, and some of it I did a little after the fact. I, I tried not to. What happens with magnetic tape like cassettes... 
thing and that kind of thing, videotape even, is the more copies, the more you know you record a sound and then you record it down again and again and again, you lose quality. So I, I didn't I didn't want to post edit uh, a lot. So I was you know I didn't want to record lines on on one tape, record them on another, and then record them on a final when I edited in sounds and music. So I. I tried to keep the re-recording to a minimum because each time you'd re-record something uh, on magnetic uh, cassette tapes, you lose audio quality. So that uh, that was one issue, I guess. I, I've been toying with the idea of kind of going back, re-editing the shows, including uh, better effects and music, but they kind of are a little nostalgic. You know, I wouldn't eliminate, unlike George Lucas, you know, uh, I wouldn't uh, eliminate the originals. I would still keep those available, but I, you know, I might tweak up. Uh, I did try to tweak up the sound on that one, try to get rid of some of the background noise a little bit and the hiss and that kind of effect. So uh, it uh, it came out okay, I thought, and it was our first shot. Uh, the The background a little bit more beyond just recording the shows. What happened when I, you know, when I was growing up, I had a few good friends of mine that were also into uh, the original Star Trek series. Again, that was the only thing that was on. There wasn't really much uh, new sci-fi ever, you know, coming out each year on TV. There was no sci-fi channel. There was no cable. There were very few films. This was this is pre-Star Wars, pre-Next Generation. But we really, really enjoyed the the original crew and the TOS episodes, as as you guys already know, uh, the longtime listeners of the uh, podcast realize all this. And what we decided to do was, you know, we didn't want to try to create more episodes centered with Kirk and Spock. We weren't trying to to do that. We wanted to kind of create our own crew. And what my friends and I did is we created the uh, the USS Aurora, our, our own starship. Uh, basically as part of the uh, the class of starships or the group of starships, very similar to the original Enterprise, you know, in that time period in the 23rd century, going off and having adventures and, and things like that. We each had our own role. Uh, my good friend uh, Alan was the, uh, was the captain. I was the science officer, first officer, you know, sort of the Spock role, because I'd always been more into the science end of things anyway, so that kind of fit me. Uh, another friend of mine, Rob, uh, was the the engineer, even though he ended up not being in, in engineering as his career. He ended up actually being a lawyer. And then we got various other people. Th- those were probably the primary. Oh, another good friend of mine, Paul, was the, uh, the ended up being the doctor, although he's not on that first episode. He's on later ones. And he actually did. He went into, like, uh, horticulture and didn't go into uh, medicine. So, uh, so it was kind of interesting. The... Uh, the other people, though, various other people, my brother ended up playing a lot of roles. Other friends in the neighborhood played different roles. I think even we even got my sister to do a few uh, parts later on in some of the other episodes. We did a total of six uh, six of these audio episodes. The first one was only about 25 minutes, I think, or so. The later ones got pushing up to an hour. So each time, I think, when we wrote them, the scripts got longer the uh, the episodes got more involved. The quality went up too a little bit. But over the course of time, I'm going to probably do a few more of those uh, and release those via the uh, the new podcasting uh, form. I still uh, I still wanted to uh, to mention as in a little bit of an aside. I, I still have just a tiny remnant of uh, this cold that's been with me for a couple of weeks now. So if I sound a little more nasally, this show and the last couple of shows are a little more froggy in the voice. That's uh, that's the reason. It's it's pretty much 99% gone, but I just wanted to mention that. Uh, 
So that's the uh, the Aurora. We actually uh, another fun thing that we did was you know there there was a crew of about four hundred and thirty on those ships at the time in Kirk's area in our ships. So we went through uh, phone books and, and other listings of people, and we created a whole list of names and and serial numbers and identities for the whole crew of the ship using uh, some of the very limited reference material that was around at that time, the the Starfleet Technical Manual. We also, uh, the the uh, the Star Trek uh, Enterprise or, or the TOS blueprints, and we we created different um, different roles and tried to come up with uh, you know how many crew people would need to be like transporter operators and how many would have to be like uh, scientists working in like botany or, or the physics area, because if you look at the old Star Trek blueprints, the, one of the first sets that came up by Franz Joseph. He actually has a lot of laboratories and areas on the Enterprise that you never really see on the TV show. You know, this was a, a ship of exploration primarily, even though most of the episodes, at least the original series, you know, you didn't really see a lot of, you know, botanists running around on planets picking up plant specimens or or physicists or geologists. It, it, it happened on a couple of them occasionally, but it wasn't really the primary idea. And, and I guess the, the action-adventure quotient wouldn't have been... Uh, would, wouldn't have been filled with that kind of, you know, hey, for this week on Star Trek, we discover three new plant species on, you know, planet 123ABC or whatever. Uh, that uh, they, they probably, Gene Roddenberry was wise in, in trying to eliminate that. But, you, you know, there were obviously a lot of in-between times and things going on that on the ship and on their, their planetary missions, you know, the landing parties that they sent down where a lot of that stuff was going on. So, we came up with, uh, you know, approximations of, you know, you'd need 12, you know, geologists and 10 physicists and things like that for uh, for your crew. And we filled it all out, and I think somewhere around uh, here on a shelf somewhere, I still have a, that whole typed up, you know, with a typewriter, no computers, no printers, uh, a whole listing of our whole, our whole crew in alphabetical order and their ranks and serial numbers and... Uh, you know, I guess it was something to have fun with. Kept us off the streets growing up. So uh, other people worked on cars and, you know, did other things. This is what we did in our uh, spare time. And, uh, I'll, you know, I'll have to even admit some of the early uh, Star Trek conventions that we went to when we were quite young. We we dressed up in our old uh, TOS-style uniforms and and went to the conventions and had a good old time. You know, at that, at that time, it was... It was very small. I mean, you know, Star Trek fandom, there were a lot of fans out there, but it isn't like it is nowadays. I mean, they have these large conventions out west, Vegas, Los Angeles, and, and, you know, thousands and thousands of people show up at these things. And there are Star Wars conventions also that that they've done called Celebration. I think they did Celebration 3 last year, right before the Revenge of the Sith film came out. And I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 people show up at that, so... The, this is back in the very early days of, of fandom, and it, it there was something kind of uh, special about it then, unique. Uh, I'd always uh, enjoyed that aspect of it, and, and actually, I, I kind of joke with my wife sometimes, you know, even though I'm still, you know, very much enjoy Star Trek science fiction and, you know, Star Wars films and other uh, good sci-fi and fantasy films that come out in television, it's... Uh, it's become almost, you know, not quite, but almost mainstream these days. I mean, look at the blockbuster films of the past three or four years. 
almost every one of them, I think, has some kind of sci-fi or fantastic element in them. You know, comic books to movies uh, that have been very successful, and it's uh, it's kind of interesting. So it's uh, you know, I kind of joke with her that I, you know I need to find some other hobby or uh, some other thing going on. And I think one of the reasons I started the podcast was was part of that because although there are a lot of people doing this now too. But it, yeah, I've always wanted to try to, you know, kind of. It's not. It's not really follow the latest fad, I guess. But it's just to do things that are a little more unique than, uh, you know, sit on the couch in front of a, a television uh, day in day out watching sports or or whatever else happens to be on that kind of stuff. It's not. You know, I've never really been into that. Uh, can't quite uh, get into that kind of thing. So anyway, I, I'm I'm going off on a tangent. Uh, bear with me. So. Uh, we're going to shortly here get to a few emails, and then uh, I think that's all I wanted to say about the Aurora. Obviously, if there's other questions or if you guys have comments about that, shoot me an email with the address I talked about, and I will try to uh, let you know or either write you back or talk about it on an upcoming show. Right now, I want to shoot over to getting to uh, a few emails I've received in the last week or so, and then we'll get into the uh, collectible portion and discussion on this week's show. It's now time for some email on Treks in Sci-Fi. Okay, the uh, the first email that I'm going to talk about here is from uh, Dave White in Boulder. Uh, he's written, I think, a couple times. Says Rick, uh, I saw the movie. This is about uh, the V for Vendetta movie, which I really enjoyed and talked about. Uh, I think on last week's show. He says, uh, Dave says, Rick, I saw the movie the day it opened. Awesome. You could definitely see a Matrix emphasis, especially in some of the knife scenes. But this was definitely not a Matrix movie. At first, I thought V talked too much, but the more I watched and listened, the more I wanted to hear. He had some fascinating things to say about the current and possible future state of society. He was a very compelling character to the very end, and I have to say that I am thrilled that we never saw behind the mask. I, we think he, uh, we think we know who he was, but we don't really, uh, and that's all to the good. Every every last line is is very eerily prescient. He says, and what a wild ride he took us on emotionally. The uh, he also says that you know I brought up the idea of 1984 and that uh, Orwell book and movie that they've done in in the podcast. He says he saw references to that also. The interesting thing, which isn't much of a spoiler, the chancellor, uh, the head of the kind of corrupt government in V for Vendetta, is played by John Hurt, who played the character of Winston Smith in the 1984 movie. Which is kind of an ironic twist. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I didn't really. I did see that film, Dave, but I, I didn't really put that connection together when I was watching V. Uh, but that's yeah, that's kind of interesting. It, he he really enjoyed the film as I did, obviously, and I talked about last week. So uh, I really appreciate that. And hey, I'd like to again mention if anyone out there who is into uh, a somewhat thoughtful but with lots of fun. Uh, I don't know if fun is the right word, but action adventure. Uh, drama and social commentary definitely go out to the movie theater and see v for vendetta this this is a a very good somewhat serious uh sci-fi slightly in the future setting film that i think deserves definitely to be seen on the big screen and i i think i said this last week don't just wait for video for this one gang um it is definitely worth seeing it's r i know we have some younger listeners I'd say if you're uh, in into high school already, if you're in the high school age group, this movie is something that you could you could talk hopefully your parents into taking you to see, and I don't think they'd uh, have any problem with uh, you seeing it. There isn't really in, anything real real strong in this. There is some violence, 
Um, but it it's in a, I think there's some occasional language, but it, it's worth seeing. And I don't think uh, it's it's somewhat unfortunate. It's R. I can understand why they rated it that. But I've seen some PG thirteen movies that probably had more uh, nasty things in them than in this film. So V for Vendetta, definitely worth seeing, gang. Uh, go take it. Take a look. All right, the next email is from Dave Chatterson, and I think uh, this might be a new one. I don't think th- I've had a few Daves write in and start to run together, but Dave, uh, this Dave Chatterson doesn't. I don't think he uh, has written before. He says, "Hi, Rick. I just want to say I find your podcast on Podcast Alley. Oh, we'll just throw in a little uh, plug for Podcast Alley. If you haven't voted for uh, the uh, Trex and Sci-Fi podcast, take a look at uh, Podcast Alley and, and toss me a vote. If you go to the pos- podcast podcast section." Off the treksf.com main webpage, you can find a link there on the right-hand side. But back to Dave's email. Uh, I like it so much, he went back and he downloaded all the past shows. He was listening to show 23 right now, he said. He says he really likes the way the show is maturing. You are doing a great job. Well, thanks, Dave. I, I appreciate that. I, I do try to to make a few little new adjustments each week. Uh quality of the audio uh add a few little effects different things trying out new stuff so uh, i appreciate that he says uh dave goes on to say he's a big star trek fan he produces a podcast called beyond science it's uh at beyondsciencepodcast.com he just started uh something let's see i just started my own at uh world at war.libsyn.com which brings me to ask if you could send a promo at which i already emailed him about he says the show, the last thing Dave says is the show that really turned he, him onto sci-fi was Lost in Space, which is which is pretty uh, interesting. Oh, one last comment from Dave P.S. He says, I use Power Grammo, Power G-R-A-M-O for recording over Skype, and it works great. I'll have to check that out. I, I do have something that seems to work pretty well, uh, although I haven't been on Skype lately. It's it's just, uh, it hasn't worked out. Uh, time's been kind of limited, but uh, I will t- definitely take a look at that, Dave, and I will link up your uh, your shows beyond science uh, and your links. I will put those in the podcast notes this week. Uh, I appreciate uh, your email, Dave. It's, uh, yeah, Lost in Space uh, and, and both Star Trek and Lost in Space were both two shows that I grew up with and were, were very, uh, you know, big influences on getting me into science fiction and uh the lost in space always had that nice little family element in it that that star trek i mean they were kind of the crew was kind of a family on there but lost in space was it was an actual real family out lost in space so thanks a lot again for your email dave and i think dave just joined the the treks in sci-fi forums also so again if anyone's really interested in talking to some of the other listeners and myself uh take a look at the forums off of the uh the main webpage. And I think that's uh, that's about all the emails I wanted to mention. Uh, I got a couple little other quick ones, but I commented back to them, so uh, that should just about do it. I did want to say uh, I'm working with a company right now to try to get a uh, it's it's a company that does uh, sells collectible type stuff on the internet, trying to get sort of a sponsor sponsorship uh, program going with them, get you guys some discounts on some neat things and have some products to, to hopefully both give away for contests and to review. So hopefully that will come together in the next few weeks. Keep uh, keep an ear out on the podcast for more news on that. And now we're going to take a just a quick break here, and I will come back and talk about our, our main topic, which is all about collecting sci-fi uh, stuff. So we'll be right back. 
You're listening to the Treks in Sci-Fi podcast, starring my friend, Rico. Okay, we're back, or I'm back. I uh, hope everyone's still with us. Uh, I, I know, um, before I get started here, too into this, I know there are a lot of people that listen to the show, and it's always been primarily, you know, a, a show that's dealt with a lot of Star Trek episodes, my take on them and discussions and reviews with audio clips. I've done some Star Wars shows, some sci-fi TV shows, movies, and, and special ones, but, you know, there's a heavy Trek uh, episode analysis content, I guess uh, is the way to say it. Uh, focus on the show and I, I but I do uh, I do know there are a lot of people that are collectors out there so I thought it'd be kind of fun to do a uh, collectible show and give you my take on on what's out there what's what's good to look for kind of a little bit of background and history on collecting at least from my, my view and my perspective uh, so let's uh, I guess let's just get into it uh, I think I'll begin back into um, the early days of, of collecting and just give you guys that may not realize some of these things. And a lot of this I, I may have mentioned during other previous talks on, on previous podcasts, but I wanted to kind of just briefly go back in time a little. Uh, you know, in the 1970s, uh, there, were, um, there wasn't a lot, obviously. You know, again, before Star Wars came out and the whole mass merchandising phenomenon for every, you know, new movie and TV thing, well, not maybe TV, but movies especially that came out, uh, it was not like it is these days. You know, these days, just about, you know, especially Disney movies, uh, any movie that they think there'll be kids or collectors that would be interested in, in, in buying product for it, they put out stuff. And some of it does well, some of it doesn't. A lot of it really doesn't, frankly. I see, I, you know, I visit some of these stores looking for new items and things, and a lot of it ends up sitting on the shelves. But, you know, 30 or so years ago, there wasn't anything hardly out for, for the show. I can... I can still really distinctly remember when I was growing up, there was a a bookstore that was fairly close to my house, and I would go visit it because books were one thing that you could still get, and or I mean, it's, well, I, let's say this differently, science fiction books, you know, not so much collecting the books, but reading the books, that was one thing that was a, a way to experience sci-fi and fantasy outside of just what was being fed to us from TV and movies, which there wasn't a lot. So I'd visit the bookstore every so often, and I remember real distinctly going in there one time, and I think I heard that these were coming out before they, they were released. There was some kind of a small promotional, you know, cardboard thing sitting there on a shelf that talking about these blueprints that were being drawn up for the Starship Enterprise, for the Star Trek, you know, original series Enterprise by this guy named Franz Joseph. And I was, you know, ecstatic. I mean, there wasn't anything out to, to do. And the idea of seeing real, uh, you know, blueprints uh, and drawings of the Enterprise was just just way, way too cool and way, way, you know, just for, for nothing, you know, there was nothing out there. So to have something like this come out was, was a thrill. And, again, I remember real well when they came out, they came in this nice little sort of vinyl pouch. I think there are 12 uh, different prints inside of it, if I remember correct. And it was one of the first, I guess, collectible uh, items for Star Trek that I remember real real well picking up. And, and, guys, you know how much those things cost? And although for me at the time it was a fair amount of money, it was they were $5. $5 for this really cool set of – and they, you can still find these things on eBay for – I don't think they cost that much on there. I haven't looked in a long time because I think I have maybe two sets of them myself. But 
these things only cost five bucks, and they were cool, and they were well done. They showed every deck of the ship. They showed, uh, and they and they lined up with the show. There were a lot of liberties taken with these things, and he had to do a lot of uh, of imagining of a lot of the different areas on the ship. I mean, there's a bowling alley on them. I think several podcasts back, if you look through the podcast notes, there's a cool website that has uh, files, uh, scans of these blueprints up on the web, and they also have scans of other. They did a lot of other Star Trek blueprints of other ships, uh, Deep Space Nine, the TNG Enterprise, which they did put a regular blueprint set out of that a, a few years ago, maybe uh, I'd say six, seven years ago that came out. But again, you know, back in the day, uh, as as people say these these days, there wasn't a lot of uh, there were some uh, action figures I think of Star Trek that were put out back then about an 8-inch size figure by a company called Mego, uh, M-E-G-O, I think is, is, and I think it's pronounced Mego. But these uh, these figures, there weren't a lot of them done, and they were, uh, I don't really go, I didn't have the money to go out and buy a lot of that stuff at the time, but now they, again, with the, the wonders of eBay, they show up on there. So this is the early days of collecting. Going to just uh, take a quick second here, get a drink of water. Yeah, that's uh, that's better. Now, uh, let's go back, uh, or let's let's move a lot closer to the present and, and talk about modern collecting now, because once Star Wars hit and they they saw the potential and the ability to to sell things. Oh, one other kind of related thing to this that I wanted to mention in the Star Wars vein, in the summer of 1977 when Star Wars came out, you know, again there wasn't really much merchandise at first because they didn't know how this movie was going to do. You had the uh, the record album come out, a two two uh, LP record album that came out in a nice black uh, slip case for that, and that was about it. The novel for the movie came out, and one thing I wanted to say that I remember real distinctly doing was the local newspaper where I lived printed uh, the the story from the novel. Uh, I think it was somewhat abridged, but each each I don't think it was each day. Maybe it was once a week. They printed a couple of pages in the newspaper of that, and I really, I can, I can remember real strongly cutting out those clippings and gluing them in kind of a, a big uh, spiral-bound notebook that I uh, had uh, of all the, uh, you know, different little, you know, movie posters that were printed in the newspaper for the movie for Star Wars, and this, uh, this script that they did over a course of a few weeks during the summer. You know, Star Wars ran, like, the whole summer into the fall in 1977, but there was no merchandise. So the record album was there and these newspaper clippings, but that was that was about it. But the Christmas of uh, that year, there were uh, some, I think it was J.C. Penney, if I remember correctly, that put out this set. It wasn't even really action figures for the movie because they didn't, for Star Wars, because they didn't have them produced yet. It was a... Uh, I forget the way they, they termed it, but you got a little box with sort of a certificate saying, well, we'll ship you these four action figures in a few months, actually, after we make them. And that was all, you know, can you imagine on Christmas Day a kid opening up a present? And it was like, okay, well, you're going to get your present. You're going to get your little action figures in a few months, not right now. I mean, that's uh, that's a true diehard kind of collector kind of guy right there to be able to wait that long for that kind of stuff. And, you know, kids... Uh, Kids are usually not that patient, but anyway, that's that's the Star Wars little note from the from the back in the older times of collecting. And eventually, of course, the other Star Wars movies came out, and more and more uh, items got released and action figures. And a lot of those early Star Wars figures are worth quite a bit these days on uh, eBay if they're in good shape. So, 
But now the main thing I wanted to talk about this week was was modern or, or current collecting. And uh, what I thought I would do is I would go through several, three or four different companies that have produced, you know, fairly good high-end, uh, you know, high, I guess you can call it high-end collectibles that I have dealt with that I've had, uh, you know, a lot of uh, enjoyment from. And we'll start with the, the, the first one which is some of the first stuff that I started collecting that was a little more on the expensive side of things. This company is uh, the Franklin Mint. And if you're not familiar with it, the Franklin Mint produces a lot of collectibles for a lot of different properties uh, over the years. And one property, one license that they got, uh, I think they first got a hold of this license in the late 80s, early 90s. I'm not sure the exact year but they uh, they got Star Trek, and what they started to create for Star Trek was a series of uh, replicas of the, sh- the, the all the different ships from the show, made out of uh, sort of a dark gray pewter metal, and they were they were all done uh, in, in the proper scale with with themselves, not really with each other, because some ships they were all basically I'd say maybe 10, 11 inches or so in long or, and on a nice little black stand. They ran in the order of like, I think uh, most of them were in the $200 range approximately, give or take. Sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. And they're, they're quite heavy, and they, but they did a real nice job with these things. You know, one of, the, one of the problems with pewter, though, it's a fairly soft metal. And some of these ships have, have you know, like the engines on the Enterprise that stick up on those fairly thin little pylons. Uh, sometimes they sag a little, that kind of stuff, but you can fix it. You just sort of gently bend them back up in place. But this, this pewter metal is rather soft, so that kind of thing can happen. But I own probably, uh, and if you go to the treksf.com website, click on collection, you can find, uh, most of what I'm going to talk about this week. The, uh, I own probably most of the Franklin Mint, uh, Star Trek ships and vehicles that they put out. Uh, they all are probably... Most of them, and I'll try to take a one picture of this case. I have a glass-enclosed uh, case where most of these sit on shelves. And I've got pictures, I think, of just about all of them up on the website, individual pictures of the different ships made by the Franklin Mint. And, and they did a really good job with these, and they got a little more sophisticated. Each one, they would include a few little accents on the piece, like the sensor dish on the Enterprise is in gold. The, the warp nacelles, the ends of those have these red crystals uh, to, to indicate the engines uh, being on or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, you know, they did uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, Space Station One, which is which is a really cool one. It's, it's different, uh, unusually shaped, not like the other Enterprise and Federation ships. You know, they did the Klingon ships, the, the Romulan, uh, the Shuttlecraft. Uh, they did a couple of dioramas also, the Franklin Mint did, one for... Trouble with Tribbles, which I own. They have a City on the Edge of Forever one, which I'm still looking for. I, I haunt eBay occasionally looking for that uh, that piece. But they did a really good job with these. And I think one of the last items that they produced was they did a um, – they, they also did the Enterprise from Star Trek Enterprise, you know, Captain Archer's Enterprise NX-01. They did a replica of that. They didn't really produce a lot of them because that was kind of when the license was uh, on its way out for them. They don't have, I don't believe, currently – they don't have a license anymore to produce any more Star Trek uh, items at this point in time. Oh, they did a few other neat things, too. That I, uh, They did a, the, the three-dimensional chess set, which I think I reviewed on a previous podcast, which is kind of neat. 
and they did a couple of replicas of some of the props, like the phaser, uh, a Cardassian uh, disruptor. They did uh, a Klingon disruptor type uh, prop replica also. So uh, the Franklin Mint, uh, check them out if you haven't uh, ever seen any of that stuff. You can look at my collection page, or you can find uh, those items still on eBay. You can't get them, I don't think, directly from Franklin Mint anymore because, again, they lost the license. They don't produce these anymore. But uh, it's kind of sad. I mean, they did probably make just about every ship almost that was ever seen. Well, I shouldn't say that. There were a lot of ships in TNG and Deep Space Nine that they never got to, you know, ships that weren't used a lot. But the primary ships, Voyager, uh, Deep Space Nine, the Enterprise from all the series and the movies, they managed to get to all those, even the Enterprise E from the last couple of Next Generation films. So that's the Franklin Mint, uh, uh, a neat little uh, license for Star Trek and some really nice items. Take a look uh, and check them out. I just love sci-fi collectibles. Here's Rico now with the latest in cool props and toys. All right, we're at about a half uh, half hour point. Uh, going to get through a couple more collectible companies here, and then we're going to do um, do our contest entries, and I'll play those for you, and we'll we'll finish that up. So that's what's coming up here. The next company, the really probably biggest company that I want to talk about for collectibles in both Star Wars and Star Trek and other items is, of course, Master Replicas. This is the current, uh, I guess, big kahuna of, of collectible-making uh, items and, and company out there. I mean, this kind of this company produces items that, are, that go for over $1,000. Some of their studio-scale, large-scale uh, um, models that they produce, they produce a... Uh, well, let's stop, stop there for a second, and I'll give you some background on Master Replicas, and I'll come back to that. Master Replicas is owns the or has the license to produce Star Trek Star Wars prop replicas models things from the shows currently this company started trying to think when they first probably I would say in 2001 approximately I think the first item I got from them was in 2002 so they haven't really been a long or excuse me around that long they have only been around about now four to five years say five years but in that time, they have produced a huge amount of collectibles, props, and replicas for, um, well, let's, let's say the, the fan that's got some definitely has to have some disposable income. Although they have, in the last year or two, they've been producing some items that, that you can get for $30 to $100, which, you know, for a kid even in high school that has a, a part-time job is, is not without or not uh, beyond their means, really. You know, you can spend more money on that than going to going to a movie uh, with somebody. Uh, so that's uh, so that's good. They've produced some lower price stuff. But let's give you again some background. They've been around about five years. They have various licenses. They have uh, those licenses. They have a. Uh, they did have a Lord of the Rings license. They only produced a few items from it. They they have um, what else have they produced uh, for? They had an Alien Predator license, although I, that might have expired. They didn't really produce a lot of items along those lines. Primarily with Master Replicas, really, these days, it's Star Wars and Star Trek. They're branching off, though, now. They have a... The the big one, the big other one that they've been working on recently is, is Disney, actually, which they've done some replicas for both um, Shrek. Uh, they did some cool things for the Narnia movie, for Chronicles of Narnia. They're doing some uh, a lot of new nice replicas from the Pirates of the Caribbean movie with uh, Johnny Depp, you know, the film from a few years ago, and there's a new film 
a new uh, Pirates of the Caribbean film coming out this summer and actually an additional film coming out next summer. And they're doing uh, some nice replicas from that uh, license. So they they don't really go into having and they oh they had Men in Black they did a one item I think only one from there uh, the Neuralizer item which is a cool one which I have uh, it's it's a really nice electronic uh, item that they put out but they they don't really go out for you know grabbing tons and tons of licenses the the rumor the idea for the other big one that they're going to get hopefully to go along with the the next film that will eventually, I guess, be made and produced is Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Indiana Jones license. They're supposed to be uh, producing some items from that in the near future. Probably the, the rumor has been that they won't really release any of these items until, the, like I said, the next film comes out to sort of capitalize on that situation, although that film keeps getting pushed back, so who knows what will happen on those lines. They may uh, start releasing items before that. But let's talk about Master Replicas and my take on them. There was a company before Master Replicas called Icons or Icons Replicas that did start producing some Star Wars items. But the the less said about them, the better, because they kind of stiffed a lot of people for a, a lot of money because they basically went bankrupt. Uh, they did produce a few items. I have a Luke, uh, Luke Skywalker lightsaber hilt that they produced. They were supposed to do a Han Solo blaster replica as seen in the first film, which never really got made. Uh, that that uh, they were they were the first attempt, and what happened is they went bankrupt. Lucasfilm shopped around looking for another company, and they hooked up with Master Replicas. So Master Replicas got the license, and then they started producing very very nice, high quality, expensive props from the Star Wars films. And the first ones they did were they did uh, the Return of the Jedi Luke Skywalker lightsaber piece. And the Han Solo blaster, the very very much like the one Icons was going to produce, which the the Han Solo blaster, as seen in in the first Star Wars movie, A New Hope, Episode Four. And you know, if you if you take a take a look at the different blasters that were used by Han in in the first movie, he has sort of a black uh, all black one with a black muzzle in the end of it. And then by the time Empire Strikes Back comes out, Luke and and Han have a a blaster, which is which is different in a number of ways, but the biggest one that you notice on screen, at least, is it has a silver flash muzzle on the end of it, which I think gives it a little more of a sort of sci-fi and fantasy look, not so gun-like looking. But that was the the Han Solo one. Those were the two items they produced, and I, I own the um, the blaster, the first one that they produced, which is actually worth quite a bit of money these days on eBay because. But the uh, the funny thing about Master Replicas, what they've been doing in the recent years, is some of the early pieces that they did, they've been re-releasing these uh, in new editions, sometimes a little uh, nicer edition, and it's it's caused some of the collectors out there to have you know kind of issues with them and not like that because they like the uniqueness and the collectible nature and the financial reward of having an item that there aren't a lot around of it, and this gets into sort of the philosophy, at least my take on on collecting. The um, my my personal view of of collecting these items, and, and people always kind of ask me, you know, hey, how come you have all that stuff? Doesn't it cost a lot of money? I don't understand the worth, you know, why it's worth that much, and and so on. Well, we'll get beyond that, but there's really in my, primarily two, I think, collectors out there, and maybe a third group that's sort of a mix of both. But there is the collector like myself. I collect these things because they give me. It's kind of like art. There are people that collect painting, sculpture, 
um, that give them pleasure to view it. They they recognize the artistic value. You know, these props and items that go into movies, there, there are a large group of artisans out in Hollywood that don't get a lot of rec- recognition and spend, you know, a huge amount of effort and time going into these things to try to make it an item that seems real on screen. And, I, you know, I don't collect paintings. I don't collect, you know, sculptures of, you know, famous artists or go into... You know, although I do enjoy art and I go into, you know, I enjoy art galleries and that kind of thing. But this is what I collect that to me is art and it gives me pleasure to see it, to to sort of sometimes, you know, pick it up, show it off to people. And it also has that other angle, which, you know, you look at the item and it reminds you of maybe a favorite TV show or a movie that you've seen, and it reminds you of how much, you know, enjoyment it was to see, you know, Star Wars for the first time, or even the the 10th time, or, or a Star Trek series, you know, the, the communicators and phasers that they used on the original series. So that, you know, I just enjoy these things, and I enjoy having them around me as sort of art pieces in, in, my, uh, in my home. So that's my thing. I don't collect this stuff to to try to profit off of it. I don't buy 10 of them and sell 9 of them on eBay at a profit because nine other suckers out there couldn't get to uh order these in time before they were sold out. You know, there those the, the name for that like in buying tickets for sporting events is called scalpers. People that uh take advantage of other people not getting a hold of something you know, it, what, what was going on in the video game scene, uh, especially a few months ago, and maybe not quite as much right now, but it's um, was the Xbox 360. You know, or, there were people lining up in front. I'm going off on a tangent, but I have a point. People were lining up in front of stores buying those things, and some people they talked to on the news had no intention ever of even breaking the seal on that box. They were buying it, and they would run home and slap it up on eBay the next day. And now, hey, this is this is uh you know a lot of these you know this happened in in the United States and it's all about capitalism and free enterprise and and do that. I've got no problem with people doing that. Will I go out and and spend double the money on an item that I can buy maybe in a couple of weeks at, at a retail price or whatever like that or, or or scalper price? No, I won't do that. I don't even do that for these props and replicas. I'll pay retail again in a few months if I didn't get a hold of something when it was on sale the retail price or whatever. And, and I have to say, I think there's been one or two things that I paid just a tiny bit above that, but I won't certainly pay any real reasonable amount of money above what it, what it originally cost. I'm just not into that kind of part of the collecting thing. If I can't get it when it first comes out, just about, I, I don't bother. I'll, I, I'll sometimes buy it after later when some master replicas releases an item. Sometimes they go down in price actually, because they sort of flood the market. But, uh, I hope I'm not going off into too much of a tangent, but I just wanted to get into the sort of philosophy of it. But, you know, you do have these other collectors, and that was sort of the second group. You know, they'll buy these things with no intention really of ever even opening the boxes sometimes just just to resell these things. And I I just, that's not me. That's not why I do it. I I liked having, you know, to be able to look at them, touch them, you know. Ooh, that sounded a little odd. But, you know, just just the pleasure of a very cool... um, prop art you know i I, you know if i had my dream job ever this is what i would be doing i'd be building this junk for movies and tv shows i used to when i was growing up when a lot of this stuff wasn't available that's what i had to do i mean i built little lightsaber hilts of my own out of things i could find at the hardware store i built phasers out of plastic parts and electronics that i could rig together 
They weren't the most accurate by far, but I had a lot of fun and learned a lot about different construction methods and electronics in doing that. But nowadays, you can buy a very authentic one-to-one scale replica of these things from companies like Master Replicas. So um, let's go back to that a little bit. Now, Master Replicas, those are the collectors, and then you've got in-between people. But the reason that I got off onto that subject was there are people out there that have a real problem with Master Replicas reissuing items. You know, reissuing an item that was sort of rare, now in a new form, and making the value of these go down. And I can understand their point to some degree. But I, my answer to that for most people that are those kind of collectors is, you know, if you really want an investment, buy some good stock or, or invest in an IRA or, or, you know, just even if you have to buy a, a money market thing or a CD. I'm not a real big money investor kind of expert. But, you know, there are ways to invest money, but collecting, you know, prop replicas and other sci-fi merchandise is not the way to do it. You know, comic books is another thing people have collected over the years, and that market's gone gone way down unless you have some vintage, really older comics, which always kind of hold their value to some to some level. So, uh, but that's uh, that's my take on on the philosophy of collecting, I guess, and yeah, and why I do or why I enjoy these things. Wow, I just uh, I just noticed that we're really running a, a lot longer than I would have thought on this subject. Uh, <laughs> excuse that uh, a little bit. Let's get things moving along so I can get to the contest and wrap this uh, this show up. Uh, so Master Replicas, they have produced primarily Star Wars, Star Trek items, and a few other licenses like I mentioned. Again, you can see a lot of that stuff. Pictures, a huge amount of their of the items I've got. Almost all the stuff that I own from them is up on my uh, collection section of the website. So you can take a look there. Lightsabers, you know, they produced a lot of lightsabers, and I was just going to mention those specifically you know, these are usually made out of um, very high-quality metal, sometimes aluminum, sometimes stainless steel, with some, you know, added-on parts made out of plastic rubber for the for different grips and things on them. And, and they're really nice. They do the one-to-one scale lightsaber replicas. They run in the order of, like, you know, $300 for each one, approximately. But they do a, a smaller scale size, which is about half size, 0.45, I think, is the scale. They're about probably at that point i think three inches three or four inches the lightsabers are usually about 10 11 inches long the uh the smaller ones though they they come in a nice little case and they're only like 35 dollars. so that's that's something for the for the lower uh price people out there that don't want to spend a lot hundreds of dollars on these things those are really really nice items and they they're producing a lot of those they also have the force fx series of lightsabers which are the light up ones that do sound effects and have the uh, the light up blade on them, and those are in the range of a hundred dollars. You can find those at like Borders bookstores also, rather than even ordering them online. And I'll link up Master Replicas in the podcast notes for this week again. But that's a really really nice item. That's that's a really excellent uh, lightsaber. It's fun uh, for Halloween. It's 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 just really a, a cool piece. Much uh, you know, there's a lot of sophisticated electronics in it. The sound effects are cool when you swing it around. You can't really, like, whack people hard with it. It will break. There is a, uh, you know, kind of a plastic-covered shell on the on the lightsaber blade. And, but it's it's not something to, to have, uh, you know, real lightsaber duels with. Those you should go down to, uh, really, the hardware store, buy a dowel, a long wooden dowel, and hook it into a hilt and, and whack, you know, go at it. Or, or I think what they did in the movies, the later uh, Star, Star Wars movies, is they, they used these... Um, 
fiberglass, very uh, strong fiberglass rods for dueling with is what they ended up in the like episode three. So, so that's Master Replicas. Great stuff, great items. Pictures up on the uh, on the web page. Check them out. They do some great things, and I'm always. Uh, <laughs> I think the most recent one that I got from them is. Yoda's lightsaber as seen in episode three, which I got to take out. I'll try to take some pictures of that and get it up on the uh, collection today. I haven't taken any good photos of that one yet, but it's kind of cool because it's small. You know, it's scaled to Yoda's size. It's one-to-one replica based on the movie, but it's, I'll probably, I'd say four or five inches long, approximately a nice little display case. And it's got some damage on it for, uh, for after his battle with, uh, Darth Sidious. So, uh, there's one other company that I'm going to mention real, real quick because I'm running out of time. It's called Sideshow Toys. I'll, I'll link that up again in the notes also. These guys, uh, the main thing I wanted to talk about them is they're producing a huge amount of uh, really cool 12-inch scale figures for both Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, and Angel. And they're doing a new line uh, of Star Wars. Uh, probably, I guess these figures are in the $50 range. They come in a very nice case. The first one's just being uh, shipped now is the Luke, as in... Uh, the outfit from Return of the Jedi, but they're these these figures are very nice with cloth outfits. If you're into the the toy uh, figure and action figure collection collecting, excuse me, area more, that is a uh, a figure to look at or those figures for sideshow toys. And that's another great company. They do some really nice Terminator items. Also, they do a lot of Lord of the Rings collectibles, and definitely look at that. Oh, and and even though I just said that was going to be the last place I wanted to talk about, I'm really rushing through these last few. The next one, um, one more, is the Nobel Noble Collection that does a lot of Harry Potter items, wands, uh, primarily some other nice pieces from the movies. And take a look at those. I will also link up the Nobel Collection, Noble Collection, Nobel or Nobel? I think it's Noble Collection on the podcast notes. So, so that's my collecting podcast for this week. Let's get into the, the contest. I'll take a quick few-second break here, and we'll come back and talk about the, the Star Trek impersonation contest for this week. This show is part of the Out of This World Entertainment on the Sci-Fi Podcast Network, tsfpn.com. All right, uh, just last, I hope people enjoyed the talk about collecting. You know, it's something that I really enjoy and obviously, I, as you can see from the from the website and the collection section and pictures, I, I have a pretty good sized collection. It's 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 becoming actually a little too big, I think. Uh, oh, I I do have a lot of uh, old action figures from Star Trek, Star Wars, also that have kind of been stored away in boxes. I haven't really been collecting those as much in the last few years. It's just. I, it kind of has become overboard. I mean, they've, they've released so much of that stuff, and, and I, I guess I just kind of had my fill of it almost. There's some cool things, and occasionally I'll still pick up a couple of them, but I've kind of gotten away from that part of the collecting area. I'm, I'm into more of the prop and the these kind of things right now. So, so that's that. Now, the contest. This one I announced a couple of weeks ago. I, I delayed it a week from the results because I only had like a couple of entries, and now I'm, I have like six six recordings for to, to play for you guys. This was for the uh, the Star Trek Three DVDs, the Search for Spock, the winner will get uh, mailed to them by the podcast by myself. This uh, this was kind of good. I, I got a couple of entries here in the last week or so that that are. Uh, these are these are pretty nice, and let's see, 
One of them is real long. I'm probably not going to play the whole length of that, but most of them are fairly short, so I can play uh, play the, them in their entirety. The first one I want to play from you is from um, our buddy Picard Delta. is is his username on the the Treks and Sci-Fi forums, and this is his uh, impression of Captain Picard, of course. So listen to this. This is Captain Picard of the Enterprise. I'm taking command of the fleet. Target all of your weapons under the following coordinates. Fire at my command. Okay, thanks for that, uh, Captain Picard. I enjoyed it. And the next one, we are going to hear... This next one is from uh, Kenny, who's a longtime uh, listener to the show and sent other entries in. This is Kenny's Borg impression. We are Borg, lowering shields to surrender your vessel. We will add your biological and technological secrets to our home. Your culture will adapt to us. We assistance is time. Wow, thanks for thanks for that, Kenny. That's a pretty cool little Borg synthesizer you got going there. The next entry here is this is actually from my son, and he said, of course, and and as they say, families and, and direct friends of the podcast are not really eligible. But I thought I'd play you his. We've been watching the Deep Space Nine. DVDs, and this is his impression of Nog. So listen to uh, my son uh, Eric's impression of Nog. The sixth rule of acquisition clearly states that opportunity plus instinct equals profit. All right, Eric, thanks for that. Uh, this next one's pretty interesting. This is from a guy named Mike, uh, and uh, this is his take, uh, sort of DS9. He does a few people, I think, on this. So listen to uh, to Mike uh, Mike's impressions. Take my love, take my land, take me where I cannot stand. I don't care, I'm still free. You can, ah, here we are, a Mr. Morn. Hello, Mr. Morn. My name is Jarek, and I'm here in the employee of the Ferengi Mutual Insurance Company, and I have an exciting product to offer you. Now, don't say anything just yet. Let me just give you the headlines. A full money-back guarantee. Yes, indeed. If you don't make a claim in the first five-year term, We'll give you all your money back. What do you say about that? I know. First time I heard that, I was speechless as well. But let me tell you more. Man, get back here. The game's starting. and I'm still waiting for the punchline to that joke. Ah, I see I've disturbed you. I'm so sorry. And by the new laws of acquisition, I'm prevented from selling to anyone who has been interrupted from watching a sporting event. So I'll take my leave. Goodbye. That rum has to go. We can't make latinum this way. So, who's next? Ah, the station's doctor, Julian Bashir. Hello, Mr. Bashir. I am not Julian Bashir. You look like him. My name is Vandika, and I possess the body of Bashir. Does not my slow and deep voice not indicate that the alien has taken over this body? No, not really. But then again, I'm not a scriptwriter, so subtle things like that tend to go over my head. Would you be interested in some accidental damage or health cover for this body? No, I intend to inflict great damage, then find another body. Doing anything this evening? Uh, yes, uh, I've got to be going and sell some policies. I hear Cisco could do with some cover for that defiant. Uh, goodbye. I wonder what Worf is doing tonight. All right, that was pretty interesting, Mike. Thanks for that. Uh, the next uh, 
Next up, this one I'm going to probably have to cut short because it's kind of long. It's um, it's a guy doing um, it's a guy doing William Shatner doing Rocket Man. This is from uh, a guy named Doug Church is his name, I think. Yeah, this is uh, his impression of William Shatner doing Rocket Man. So listen to this. She packed my bags last night. Pre-flight. Zero hour is 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much. I miss my life. It's so lonely out in space. On such a timeless flight. A timeless flight. And I think it's going to be a long, long time touchdown brings me around again to find that I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh, no. I'm a rocket man burning out his fumes up here alone. It's definitely going to be a long, long time till touchdown brings me around again to find Wow, that was uh, that was pretty amazing, Doug. Uh, thanks for that. I had to cut it off a little bit. It got it was uh, it had another like two or three minutes to go, but uh, there he is, William Shatner as Rocket Man from Doug. And uh, we've got one more here, and this is from uh, Chris Young. He's written a few times to the podcast, I think. This is Chris's uh, impression of George Takei. This is George Takei. I played Lieutenant Sulu of the Starship Enterprise. I hope you all enjoyed another week of listening to Treks in Sci-Fi, presented by my friend Rick Dosty. Well, thank you, uh, thank you, George, or should I say, Chris, uh, for that uh, very good George Takei Sulu uh, impersonation. Now um, we're gonna roll another die for the for the winner here, and I'm gonna do it. Well, looks like uh, the last one, Chris Young. Yes, Chris, you as Mr. George Takei Sulu are the winner for the Star Trek Three DVD. So, Chris, uh, if you wanted to shoot me an email at treksf at gmail and I will uh, I'll ship that out to you. Uh, I really appreciate all the entries. Uh, it was it was good. You guys did great. You all did great, and I enjoyed hearing uh, hearing that. I really expected to get another Shatner, you know, Kirk. Shatner impression of somebody doing, you know, Spock, Bones, what are we going to do? Now we've got to beam down. You know, something like that. That's the uh, the classic. But uh, but anyway, I think that's going to wrap up this week's Treks in Sci-Fi podcast. Next week we'll do another midweek show, probably throw up another uh, episode of the Crew of the Aurora, I think. Uh, and then for next weekend, I'm going to do a Next Generation uh, Star Trek episode analysis and discussion. So we'll be back with uh, 
next weekend show we'll have a uh, Star Trek episode for all of the Star Trek fans. So, again, I hope you guys enjoyed the the talk about collecting this week. Uh, it was just kind of my way of talking about my philosophy a little of it, the history, you know, my my at least personal experiences with it, and some of the companies that are really big into it these days to keep an eye out for uh, for these types of collectibles from sci-fi, fantasy, and, and movies. Of course, there are huge amounts of toys. You know, going to any Toys R Us out there, and there's there's a lot of that stuff that you can find. And it's it's just, you know, places trying to, to get you to buy their merchandise and, and spend some money on some neat things. So, And the Internet has really made things easier, too, with eBay and Google searching for this stuff. So... The, the one last thing I didn't, I forgot again, but I've mentioned them before, is there, there are some neat forums out there for collectors, so take a look for that stuff. I'll put a couple links for those up also in the notes. Again, everyone, hey, have a great week. It's, weather's getting nicer out. Uh, there's more light, and spring is coming. So you guys enjoy the week, and I will talk to you around Wednesday or so, Wednesday evening with another mini-show, and then next weekend with Trek again. So this is Rico signing off for Treks and Sci-Fi. Have a good one, everyone. Bye-bye. This has been a Rick Dosti production. This podcast, copyright 2006, all rights reserved.